Friends, peace and comfort to you from God the Father, in Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last week in our Gospel reading, uh, we read about an event at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the event we call the temptation in the desert, the temptation in the wilderness. And what we read just a couple of minutes ago from Mark chapter 8 comes toward the end of Jesus' ministry. We're coming on three years later. And usually we don't do this. Uh, In our Sunday morning readings, as we read from the Gospels, we don't tend to jump huge chunks. We sort of go ahead a a little bit, verses by verses, uh, chapter by chapter, annually through the life of Jesus. It's unusual that we have a jump from Mark chapter 1 last week all the way to Mark chapter 8 this Sunday. But there's a reason that we make this jump over these two weeks. There's a connection between the event that we read about last week and and this event that we read today. Uh, Just to recap what it was that occurred last week and the, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Immediately after being baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, and being revealed as the the chosen one, the Christ, whom God had sent to save, Jesus is led by God's Holy Spirit out into the desert, the wilderness regions beyond the Jordan in Israel. And he spends 40 days out there fasting. Our 40-day Lent season, in fact, is meant to call Jesus' experience in the wilderness there to mind. These 40 days before Holy Week echoes Jesus' own time in the wilderness. And while Jesus is out in the wilderness, Satan comes to him with with three particular temptations. First, he comes to Jesus, who again is, is hungry, has been fasting out there, and he says to him, Why don't you use the power that is yours as God's son and turn these stones into bread, if you really are God's son? Why not? You know, it seems fairly reasonable. Jesus refuses. He recognizes that he was led out into the spirit or into the wilderness by the spirit to practice faith as our substitute. And he knows that if God led him out into the wilderness, God will provide for him. Where God leads us, God will provide for us. Jesus practices faith in a way that you and I often fail to do as our substitute there in the wilderness. All right. The devil tries something else next. He takes Jesus up to a high mountain, shows him the world and all its kingdoms, and says, you know what? This this battle that you and I are fighting over the world, over all the people here wanting to claim them, I'll give it up. I'll I'll stop fighting against you if you just, just now, just once, bow down and worship me. And Jesus replies, no, it is written, he quotes from the scriptures, worship the Lord your God, serve him only. Once more, at least once during this particular instance, Satan tries to tempt Jesus. He takes Jesus up to the top of the temple in Jerusalem. Imagine kind of standing outside church here where the the front brick facade on the front of the building is with the big cross that's opposite this one. Standing up there, there's Jesus looking down and Satan next to him says, you know, why don't you throw yourself down from here? After all, God promises that he sends his angels to protect you. Jesus replies, though, it's also written, and God promises in his word, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Throwing himself off the building would test God, Jesus knows. What does it mean to test God? It means to challenge God to do something 
which God has not promised in his word to do. God does send his angels to protect his people. He promises that he does that in his word. He does not promise that someone who throws themselves off a building should expect angelic divine intervention to keep them safe. God simply does not make that promise. And we limit our faith to the things that God has promised. We don't challenge God and test God and tell him, God, I want, I want you to do this for me as well. We can pray. We can bring our petitions before him. We don't challenge him. We don't test him. That is not what faith is. Satan leaves him. We fast forward now, three years in our readings this morning. We've got Jesus, as we read, being taken aside by his devoted disciple Peter, the one who has recognized that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, the one whom God sent. But Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him about this whole apparent suicide mission. Jesus is talking to them about when they're going to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, he's going to be rejected, he's going to die. And Peter doesn't like hearing this. And as we put these two events alongside one another, we see that that last interaction which Jesus had with Satan comes to Jesus' minds. In fact, when you go into the Greek, Peter turns, or Jesus turns to Peter and dismisses him with the very same four words that he uses to dismiss Satan three years earlier. Get behind me, Satan. And Peter means well. This feels pretty harsh. Peter cares about Jesus. And to be honest, Peter cares about himself too. He's a married man. He's got a family to think about. He's one of Jesus' followers, and if Jesus going to Jerusalem means Jesus being rejected, betrayed, dying, Peter's pretty sure I could probably expect the same thing, too. It's a reasonable concern that Peter has here. But Jesus' great enemy, your great enemy as well, Satan, he uses Peter's reasonable concerns to try and derail God's plan to reconcile us to himself and to save us. There's something interesting to note here. With that earlier temptation, right up on the temple's pinnacle at the very beginning of his ministry, what does Satan want Jesus to do? He wants Jesus to die. With this temptation now, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, Satan wants Jesus to live. So we notice something. Satan, it turns out, does not actually particularly care one bit whether Jesus specifically lives or dies so long as Jesus does not die carrying out his work on the cross. So long as Jesus gives into the temptation to avoid that particular suffering. And we talked about temptations or tests last week. This week we're looking at suffering. There's a relationship between these two words. They're not the same thing, these ideas, temptation and testing or suffering. They go together often. But temptation test, as we talked about last week, tends to refer, specifically refers to the choices that are set before us. Suffering refers more to the circumstances which, which might surround such a choice. So those English words, test or temptation, oftentimes in the biblical languages, they're the same word. They're not necessarily distinguishable as the same, in the same way that we can distinguish test and temptation. And usually what it refers to is a choice between loving God and neighbor, or not loving God and neighbor. Those are the choices that are presented to us when we're tested, when we're tempted. If we talk about such things as a temptation, we're kind of highlighting Satan's role and his intent in presenting such a choice to us. 
if we talk about such things as a test or maybe a trial, we're sort of highlighting God's intent in allowing such a choice into our lives. Suffering generally is any kind of circumstance in life that we would rather not experience. It, it, the kids talked about cleaning up during their message. I, I can tell you, my kids would rather not ever have to clean up. So maybe, yeah, for them, that is a suffering. Anything we wouldn't want to go through, anything that we would want to end when it's occurring to us, uh, we can think of that as suffering. And there is a subjective aspect to suffering. Someone, uh, maybe my wife, enjoy cleaning up sometimes, right? Enjoying tidying up for the kids, it's suffering. There's a subjectivity to suffering, right? What one person regards as suffering, another person might not. I'll use a, a more serious example. Uh, one person might yearn to be married. And for them, being single then is, is suffering. It's, it's a hardship. It's a difficulty. Another person might be content as a single person. The Apostle Paul was one such person. He writes about his ability to be content in his singleness. He doesn't write about the fact that he was single in his letters as a, a burden, as a difficulty, but instead as something that he found a number of blessings in as he worked as a minister. What's suffering for one person, not necessarily what's suffering for another person. Suffering almost always accompanies the things that we would call tests, temptations. They're not the same thing. They are usually connected. They don't always come in the same order either. You can have suffering and then temptation. You can have temptation, testing, and then suffering. Sometimes you can have temptations, tests within suffering generally. A couple of ways that I could maybe picture that for you. Let's imagine that you're an overworked parent who's just trying to make ends meet. Nobody on Long Island knows what that's like, right? Nobody's ever lived through that kind of a circumstance. Maybe you're working long hours at one job, maybe even two jobs. And yet still, alongside your work and your partner's work, you can never seem to arrive at some financial stability, or the ability to feel secure. But those circumstances are suffering. And then in the midst of that suffering, you find the opportunity at work to steal from your employer. Their temptation sort of follows suffering and it primes us toward wanting to maybe go in a particular direction. Another example that I'll throw out there, you're not the person who's tempted to steal, you're that person's coworker, let's say. And your friends, you, you know this person, you know that times are tough for them, you know that it's hard for them to make ends meet, and you find out that your friend gave in to that temptation. They did steal from your employer. And now you have a test before you. Right? Whether it's going to be that you tell your friend they need to confess, turn themselves into your employer, or whether you turn them in yourself, you know that that's going to cause some suffering. Suffering for them, as they'll probably lose their job. Suffering for you, as you're going to have to deal with the fact that, that you did that to someone that you considered a friend. Right there, in that instance, you've got the test before the suffering. Of course, there could also be suffering that doesn't necessarily involve uh, a choice, right? Someone liveth, living with chronic illness, for example, suffers. There might be choices involved, right? Choices about treatment, other choices to make, but they're not necessarily presented with a choice between loving God and loving neighbor or failing to love God and failing to love neighbor, right? In other words, not every choice that we can make in life 
would be biblically described as a test or a temptation, right? The choice to have surgery or chemo after a cancer diagnosis wouldn't be something we would biblically describe as a, a test or a trial in that way because a Christian can go either way. There's no right or wrong answer. It might be hard to decide, but there's nothing right or wrong inherently about either one. Someone who's thinking about what they might want to study in college, or even if they want to go to college, they have a choice set before them, but it's not a choice that we would call it a test, a trial, a temptation in the biblical sense, where we're talking about what is right, what is wrong. Christians are free in these things. We don't have to figure out what, what's the right thing that God wants for me in life. What God wants for you in life is for you to turn to him in faith and love your neighbor. And whatever you do outside of that, you're free. Only when we encounter a choice between love and sin are we, biblically at least, being tested, tempted. It's those kind of decisions. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says in today's reading, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. What he says there, this phrasing, it would have been really strange to that crowd, right? To us, it maybe doesn't sound that strange because we already use that word crosses as a metaphor for, for difficulties, right? For hardships that we undergo in life. Right? We say things like, well, everyone has their own crosses to bear. But that phrase only exists in English because of what Jesus says here. It's another one of those ways that his life, his teaching, has just irreversibly changed our world. The very use of the phrase crosses as sort of an example for, for metaphorically hardships and difficulties wasn't in the language of every day that they would have used. No one used cross in that way back then as a, a, a metaphor. It was a literal thing. Right? It was that big wood combination torture instrument and execution device. That's what a cross was. What Jesus says here to them would have sounded just as strange as if today he were saying it to us and he said, everyone has to deny themselves, pick up their electric chairs, and follow me. What does that even mean? Well, the phrasing might sound confusing, but what Jesus goes on and says to the crowd makes very clear what his meaning is. Those who want to follow me, he's saying, should expect to face difficulty. Those who want to follow me, who want to be my disciples, should expect suffering. And again here, Jesus is specifically referring to that kind of suffering that's involved with tests and temptations. Suffering like, using those examples I threw out there earlier, continuing to live paycheck to paycheck because you refuse to steal from your employer. Suffering like seeing that friend harmed, maybe even losing their job because you convince them to confess what they had done to your employer. And we can give that kind of suffering a special name. We would call it maybe suffering under the cross, the kind of suffering that shows up in our lives specifically because we follow in Jesus' way. Not all suffering is suffering under the cross. Another example that I used earlier, singleness, is not necessarily suffering under the cross. Being the, The desire to be married is not necessarily suffering under the cross, even though it might be suffering. But at a Christian young woman, let's say, who is not married yet, is dating, she might face suffering under the cross when her boyfriend is angry that they're not sleeping together. A Christian with chronic illness, not necessarily suffering under the cross just because of the illness, but 
he might face temptation under the cross when the pain that he endures makes him short-tempered, irritable at home. And in both of those situations, their suffering could maybe find some sort of short-term release in giving in. Right? The Christian young woman might recognize, well, look, this will maybe strengthen our relationship for me to sleep with my boyfriend. The, the, the man who's ill might feel some sort of short-term emotional release, at least by having this angry outburst toward his family as he's suffering that pain. And this is where those temptations that Jesus faced, what we read two weeks ago, or a week ago, what we read this morning, this is where seeing those temptations helps us rethink suffering. Because again, something that was made clear in those, Satan doesn't actually particularly care whether we suffer or not. So long as he can turn us from love for God and love for neighbor. If he can do that by bringing suffering into our lives, well, that's great. If he can do that when suffering is removed, also great. He doesn't care. He did not care if Jesus died throwing himself off the temple or lived by avoiding the cross. Didn't matter to him. So long as Jesus did not love us on his cross. So long as Jesus turned from love for God, who had sent him into the world to do that, and love for neighbor, all of us who needed him to die for us, so long as Satan could turn Jesus away from that, whether by death or by life, Satan's plan was accomplished. And likewise, Satan does not specifically care whether you suffer or not. All he is interested in is turning you away from God, away from your neighbor, away from love, to sin. Jesus calls on us as his followers to rethink suffering, right? to see the opportunities for love that are present as we suffer. Right? We'll think about that man who's suffering through his chronic illness as he resists the temptation to, to lash out angrily, frustratedly, the understandable temptation to lash out at his family. Or that Christian young woman who's standing firm and her, her faith-worked understanding of sex as a, a gift given from God to be enjoyed in marriage. Well, both of them grow in patience, in self-control, in resilience, in love. It's what the Apostle Paul is writing about in Romans 5 as he writes about suffering and says that suffering produces character. Character produces perseverance. Perseverance produces hope, which does not put us to shame. Unlike the choices that we might make in response to suffering that do bring us shame when we lash out at our family when we're hurting. We ought to feel shamed. God has a good purpose for allowing suffering into our lives. And yet it still hurts, right? When we suffer, we suffer. Right? We, we don't come up with a different name for it. We still acknowledge it's suffering. It hurts, right? Knowing that God can work growth for us through suffering still doesn't take away the pain that we feel. And I know you feel pain. I know that some of you, when you leave, are going to leave today facing physical pain. I know there are a few people who maybe aren't here this morning who deal with regular chronic illness, the kind of things that we're talking about today. I know that some of you are going to go and deal with relational pain, that there are broken relationships in, in your family, in your life, in your circle, that there are family members who don't 
receive the gospel message that you regularly share with them and let you face that kind of suffering. I don't know anyone here, I don't know anyone outside these four walls who doesn't deal with some kind of suffering in their lives. And I'm a young guy. You know what? I'm a young man. I'm a young pastor still. And I have not yet dealt a whole lot with suffering in an experiential way. I still haven't learned all the lessons personally that, that suffering can teach us. Jesus did. We heard the words that he spoke prophetically through David in Psalm 22, words that spoke of suffering. And when we read his life, we see that he is, as the Bible calls him, the man of sorrows, the one who was acquainted with suffering. And so while I don't maybe personally have insight into all that suffering entails as it, it serves to cause our growth, I know that Jesus does. I've just got three thoughts this morning to walk away with as we wrap up this message for us to take home as we rethink suffering. These are things that I try and take to heart when I face trial, hardship. One, this just echoes a point that we saw last week as we thought about temptations, trials. Facing suffering doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Facing trials, we noted last week, doesn't mean that God doesn't love you, and it's true of suffering as well. It does not mean just because you're suffering that God doesn't love you. God loves his son, has loved his son from eternity very deeply. God allowed him to suffer to the point of death. Suffering, the simple fact of suffering, doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Point one. Point two, you're not alone in your suffering. God's spirit lives within you. And one of the things the Bible tells us as a promise in our suffering is that when we suffer, God's spirit groans within us, pleads with God on our behalf. God does not make himself absent when you suffer. He's with you. The last one. The way you and I react to suffering is not the basis on which God will judge us. And thanks be to God for that. Right? Because we do not, and I know this personally, even again, as a young guy who has not dealt with a whole ton of suffering, I know that I don't always react to hardship and difficulty real well. Not as God would have me react to it. I'm sure you could acknowledge the same thing. Right? When we suffer, we seek to avoid it. We seek to run from the circumstances. We, we don't look for the opportunities to love and to grow. But the Apostle Paul writes, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have been justified by his blood, by his blood, by his suffering, his death, not ours. God does not judge you on the basis of your handling of the suffering that he allows into your life. Thanks be to him for that. He judges you on the basis of Jesus' handling of the suffering we deserved. So now we can face suffering as it comes into our lives without fear, with humility. Yeah, absolutely. But with confidence. Confidence because we know God is with us. Confidence because we know that God loves us. Confidence because we know that God has reconciled us to himself. So to him be glory through the lives of his people filled with faith and love throughout all generations. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today on Grace of God Sermon Cast. We hope this episode has been a source of inspiration and reflection for you. 
As we wrap up, we want to remind you that Grace of God Lutheran Church is here for you, and we invite you to be a part of our community. If you have any questions, if you want to learn more about our services or simply connect with us, you can visit our website at graceofgod.church. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to stay updated on future episodes. And if you enjoyed today's content, please consider leaving us a review. Your feedback means a lot to us and helps others discover the message we're sharing. Before we go, a quick reminder that our Sunday worship services are held at 510 Deer Park Avenue, Dix Hills, New York, at 9.30 a.m. every Sunday. We would be delighted to have you join us in person and experience the warmth and fellowship of our community. Thank you again for tuning in. Until next time, may the grace of God be with you always.